at verse 1. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So, to give you a little background, there are two groups that are present in the Jerusalem church. There are the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The Hebrews are Jewish people who have come now to follow Christ. And they're people that lived in and around the Jerusalem area. And so the primary language that they would speak would be Aramaic. The Hellenists were also Jews who had come to follow Christ. But they were from areas outside of Jerusalem and that surrounding area. And so the primary language that they would speak is Greek. To give a little background on why this is, to take us into a quick Old Testament um, uh, history, if we start even from the book of Exodus, God saves his people, Israel, from the hands of Pharaoh and of Egypt. He leads them into the promised land. And for a while, they are in the promised land, and the ones that are ruling them are called judges. They're ones that God has given to deliver them. Well, the people say, we want a king like the other nations. And so then the first king of Israel, Saul, is put into power. Not long after that, the second king, David, is in power. And during David's time, there's much sin within Israel. And so something happens. The nation of Israel divides into two. There ends up being a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Well, the people continue to worship other gods. And they continue to sin against the Lord. And so the Lord allows their enemies to overtake them. The Assyrian people conquer the northern kingdom. And the Babylonian people conquer the southern kingdom. And when they do, they take the Israelites with them out of the land that God had given them. They are in exile, in captivity, for a period of time. Eventually, many of the Jews do come back to Jerusalem and in that area, but many stay in the different areas surrounding that they were displaced into. And so that is where we have it, it, this, it, what's called the dispersion of the Jews. That's where we have this divide. The ones that were in the Jerusalem area primarily spoke Aramaic, and the ones that were from outside areas primarily spoke Greek. Now, it's probably at the time of the Passover and Pentecost when those outside Hellenist or Greek-speaking Jews would have come to Jerusalem. They would have heard Peter preach at Pentecost, and they would have decided to give their lives to following Jesus. But now we have this church that has Greek-speaking Jews and Aramaic-speaking Jews, and there arises a conflict. The Hellenists, or the Greek-speaking Jews, have widows that are being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, what is the daily distribution? Well, in Acts chapter 2, we read this. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Then we read again in Acts chapter 4. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold 
and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So when the early church is formed and they first hear this message of grace about Jesus Christ, a radical generosity characterizes the church. They are giving uh, to the church, to the apostles, that they can distribute to any who had need. And the widows were one of the, in this group. And so um, in this daily distribution, the Greek-speaking widows were being neglected. They weren't receiving the funds or the food that others were. And so this is a serious problem. Now, at this point in the book of Acts, we have seen a lot already in the church. We've seen increasing persecution. First, we've seen uh, the Jews that practice Judaism have brought Peter and John before them in trial. And the first time, they just basically said, hey, don't talk about Jesus. The second time, they physically beat them. And to give you a little foreshadowing of what's to come, the next time that they bring them in, the severity is going to increase. So they've faced increasing persecution. They've also dealt with sin. Uh, We saw Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit. And so God cut the cancerous sin out of the church when Ananias and Sapphira fell dead. And now we have conflict in the church between two different groups. And so I want to take a moment here to just say this. I think when we think of the church, we come from various backgrounds and different experiences. And there's two ditches on either side of the road that I want to be careful that we don't fall into. The first one is that having this idea that the church is a perfect place, that the church is full of perfect people. And anyone who has spent a a while in the church will soon come to realize what we've seen in the first couple chapters of Acts, that the church is messy, that the church is not a place of perfect people. I love this, I love this quote, and I think it's, it's, it's such a, uh, I, I can't remember who said it, but I think it's such a good one to, to keep in mind. Um, it says, when we believe in Jesus, we are delivered from the penalty of sin. In that moment, right then. As we live our lives as Christians, we are delivered from the power of sin as we grow to be more like Christ. But it is not until Jesus returns or we die that we are fully delivered from the presence of sin. And so in the church, we still deal with sin. We still deal with messiness. And I think if we have the expectation that the church is a perfect place, then that expectation can be crushed very quickly. But I also want to protect from the ditch on the other side of the road. It is very easy to be hurt by the church and so disregard it completely. I know that there are many on live stream who are home because of uh, physical uh, needs or, or you know, their own health, and I com- we completely understand that. But there can also be a tendency to go to live stream because you don't have to deal with the messiness of the church. It's kind of nice and neat. You just click on your TV and boom, there's the sermon. And so I think that we need to be careful not to disregard the church, but to also see the church how God sees it. To see the church as God's bride that he died for and gave his life for. It says that the church is a chosen race, 
a, a priesthood, a people that God has called for his own possession. Think about the amazing reality right now, that if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And so we as gathered Christians are a picture of the temple of God. God's presence is in this place right now because we are gathering together. And so we need to see the beauty of the church too. So to put it simply, I'd say it like this. When it comes to the church, recognize the brokenness, but see the beauty. Let's continue in verse 2. Now the conflict arises and it's brought to the apostles. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. <laughs> so we already have a conflict. Now we bring the apostles in and they say, not us. We're not dealing with it. If the apostles aren't going to deal with it, then who is? Right? What, it, what is going to be the solution to the problem that the church is facing? And we're going to see it as we continue to read. Let's look at verse 3. They say, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So what we see is that the apostles call the church together. And they say, we have this problem, and we need seven men who will rise up to handle this. Men who are godly men, full of the Holy Spirit. Men who have good reputation. And men that are also wise and able to do this task before them. And so they select the men, and they appoint them to this role. And it's interesting. All seven of the men have Greek names. And so even though that this, there was a problem between the Aramaic-speaking Jews and the Greek-speaking Jews, they choose all Greek-speaking Jews to handle the problem because those were the ones that were being neglected. And so we see uh, that, that these men rise up to serve the church. It's interesting. They're all Greek-speaking Jews except for uh, the last one, Nicholas. He's said to be a proselyte of Antioch. A proselyte is one who was a Gentile, but actually was uh, decided to be converted to the uh, Jewish faith, to Judaism. And so that, that person would follow the law, they would be circumcised, um, th they would come completely into the Jewish faith. Now, at this point, he's a Christian. He's decided to follow Christ. Um, but it's interesting that even a Gentile who converted is now part of this group. And so we're, we're already starting to see the expansion of the gospel beyond just the Jewish people. Now, when I read this passage earlier this week, I confess that I read it and I thought I was going to be preaching a sermon on the structure of the church and the government of the church. 
this passage is used by many to detail out what deacons are and what elders are. But I don't think that that's what this passage is actually saying to us. There's a principle of biblical interpretation that I think is like essential for every Christian to know. And it's this. Narrative in the Bible. So narrative we mean story, uh, but it's not a made-up story. It's, it's history. Um, but, but historical narrative in the Bible is usually not normative. So narrative is usually not normative. And what we mean by that is uh, that it's not setting a basis or a model for us today. So, right, we're not in this service wondering, like, okay, I wonder when the next church service is, when the tongues of fire are going to come, and we're going to hear the gust of the mighty wind. And <laughs> we didn't just select our elders by casting lots and rolling dice. Um, I, I don't know if you've walked up to anyone who is lame and told them to just get up this week. I don't know how that went for you. But uh, what we see in the book of Acts is a unique history. That doesn't mean that we're supposed to model or base what we do exactly off what they're doing. And I think that this is an error that's easy to fall into in Acts. Let me give you a, an example from the Bible that I think is a good one. And it's the example of Gideon. Now, uh, the story of Gideon is, uh, involves this moment when Gideon is trying to figure out what God wants him to do. And so he lays out a fleece and he says, uh, Lord, give me a sign if the, if the fleece is wet and if the ground is dry, then I know this is what you want me to do. Now, to read that as normative, right, that's a piece of history. That, that's an events that happen. To read that as normative is to say, oh, I need to figure out which job I'm going to take. So I get out my fleece and I throw it outside and I say, okay, God, give me the sign. Now, normally we don't do it like that. We don't do it to that extreme, but we do kind of do a semi-normative thing. We kind of do the thing of like, well, I got this decision to make, so, you know, I'm not going to use the fleece, but God, give me a sign, whatever sign you'd like. You know, I'll, I'm accepting anything now. But when we really read that story, what we see is that that was actually a moment where Gideon was lacking faith. God had already given him signs. He's asking for another. And so it's not, I'm not saying that narrative has nothing to say to our lives today. I do not think that's true. I think there's lots that it has to say to our lives today. But I think we have to be careful not to make it normative. So in that story of Gideon, I think the principle that we would draw out would be more likely the fact that God uses weak and, and those that don't have a lot of faith to accomplish his purposes so that it's his glory that is the outcome. Now, that's a very different principle to take to apply to our lives than I got a decision to make. I'm laying out the fleece. And so, too, when we come to Acts, I think it's easy to fall into that trap. But, for instance, if this is a model or a basis for what we would call deacons in the church, there would be some things that we would have to change. So, for, so at VBF, we don't use the word deacon uh, or deaconess. Um, we've, it's not that we might not use that word in the future, but we've just not decided to use that word. 
what we say is we call them ministry leaders. And so to give you like the 30-second um, overview is our elders and pastors are those who are given to teaching the word, given to prayer, given to equipping Christians for the work of ministry. Uh, they're the spiritual leadership of the church. But we also need those who will serve the church in administrative ways or physical ways or um, maybe it's financial way. And we see in the book of 1 Timothy, we see in the book of Titus, that Paul is intending the church to be structured in this way where you have elders, pastors, and then you have uh, you know, ministry leaders, deacons. Now, I think that this passage foreshadows that. But I don't think it provides the basis for it. For one thing, they picked seven men. We have several ministry leaders here who are women. And we believe that that is what the Bible teaches in those other places. So if we were to say this is our exact model, then we would have to ask them to step down. Another thing is that the congregation is the one who selects these men. None of our ministry leaders were selected by the congregation. <laughs> and so we would have to change that. And so I'm just trying to show you Yes, this has something to say to that, but it's not an exact model or basis of it. But I do think it emphasizes a principle that we need. And that principle is that delegation of responsibility is essential for a healthy church. Delegation of responsibility is essential for a healthy church. We need faithful men and women who give their time, who give their energy to serve the church, to make it function. It's necessary for the health of the church. As we see here, the disciples have, I mean, the apostles have a primary task that they need to focus on. Ministry of the word and prayer. And so it is necessary that we need others. An example of this that we see in the Old Testament is uh, one with Moses and his father-in-law, Jethro. So after God delivers the people of Israel out of uh, Egypt, it says that uh, after they were out of Egypt, it says that Moses would wake up in the morning and he would sit before the people. And until evening, the people would be surrounding him, asking him questions and asking him to make decisions on things and asking him what God's word says. Morning till evening, well, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, comes into town, and he sees this, and he goes, Oh, Moses, what are you doing? <laughs> you can't do this alone. You need to raise up others who can share some of this responsibility and who can make some of these decisions, and they'll bring the important things to you. And so, you know, the principle that we see from this is that uh, your in-laws can often see your flaws better than you can. That's not really what we see, <laughs> although it might be true. Um, the principle that we see is that it was necessary for the health of Israel to have a delegation of responsibility, and so too with the church. Now, COVID has been a time when uh, one of the things that's been hit hardest in the church has been serving. I mean, we went online at first, and then we started to meet back in person. It's not just our church, every church 
has been hit hard in the area of people serving the church and giving their time and energy to it. And some have health concerns where they maybe they were serving before, but they don't feel like they can after. And so I would just ask you to consider seeing the necessity of faithful men and women serving in the church, that principle here. Might God be prompting you today if you do not serve in any capacity at VBF? to step forward and serve in some way. Even if you don't know the area that you might serve in, you can just come to the table in the back and say, hey, I, I don't know what area I would serve in, but I feel prompted to want to give my time to serve the church. And we can help you figure out what area would be best that you could serve in. And so I just would ask you to consider that today because the principle we see is that a delegation of responsibility is essential for the church to be healthy and for it to function how it is. Now, if I'm not saying that the point of this history is to give us a model or a basis for deacons and elders, what is the point? What point is Luke trying to get us to see through this piece of history? And I think it's this. That the word of God is to be primary in the church. It is to be the priority in the church. And I want to give you two reasons why I believe that is. But, but first, I want to say one, one thing before that. So when we're talking about the word of God, I, I feel like I need to make this association as well. What is the main message of the Word of God? I've asked different people this before, and I've heard answers anywhere from um, love to uh, the main message of the Bible is to be a good person. So what is the main message of the Bible? It's, it's an important question. And the main message of the Bible that, we, that the Bible attests to itself is that the main message is the gospel. But what is the gospel? <laughs> the gospel is a word that we use that means good news. But what is the good news? And I think the, the way that, um, that I most uh, kind of easily like to explain this is with four words. It's God, man, Christ, response. So God is holy and good and is the creator of all things. And he made all things, including man and woman, to worship him. But man sinned against God, disobeyed and rebelled against him. And so every person is born with a sinful, rebellious heart and is deserving of God's righteous judgment upon them. But the good news is that Jesus Christ is God's son and was sent to the earth to die upon the cross, to take on himself the righteous judgment that you and I deserved. He took it on himself. But the grave could not hold him because he was the son of God. And so he rose from the grave three days later, showing his triumph over it all. But who will be saved? Only those who respond by turning from their sin 
and turning to Christ, by trusting in his work on the cross. And if you do, you will be forgiven by the grace of God of all your sin and be given eternal life. God, man, Christ response. That's the gospel. And we see often that the word is associated with the gospel in the Bible. So the, the passage from our scripture reading from 1 Peter, it had that beautiful passage about how the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. What does it say right after that? And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So we often see an association between the two. It is the main message of the word. And so I feel like I, I had to say that before I go into and give you the reasons why God's word is primary. So again, I ask, why is God's word primary in the church? And there's two reasons that I, that I like to give you this morning. And the first is that God creates the church through and by his word. The church is not created by good marketing. The church is not created by friends inviting people. The church is not created by a great set of programs for people to be involved in. You want to know that the church growth strategy of the book of Acts? It's three things. God's word, prayer, and the Holy Spirit. And one of those we can't control at all. It's the Holy Spirit. And so even there, we see that church growth isn't a formula that we can just apply and know that the church is going to grow. It has to be God's work. God builds his church. And our part is to simply share the word and to pray. That is how God builds his church, by using the word to create his people. I want you to see this. Let's look at verse seven of our text. This is the, the, um, the resolution of the uh, story that we're reading. In verse seven, it says, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So see the emphasis here. It's three times repeated. The apostles say, we can't give up preaching the word. They say, we're devoting ourselves to the word. And the result is that the word increased. From this point on in the book of Acts, Luke is actually going to, there's going to be four more times where he tells us about the church continuing to grow. And what he's going to do is he's going to alternate between saying the disciples increased and between just simply saying the word increased. Because the two are associated. When the word of God increases, God builds his church. That is the pattern we're seeing. That's the emphasis we're seeing. We see them linked together here. And this is so cool. I don't know if you caught that last line. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The, the Jews that practiced Judaism, these priests, from this point, uh, up until this point, the chief opponents of the Christians, some of them are being saved. This should show us no one is too far from God. When God's word is shared, he can save anyone. Do not think that someone that you know is too far from God or cannot be saved by God just because they seem to be an enemy of God. 
because the book of Acts will show us, not just here, but pretty soon again, one of the chief enemies of God will be the one that God saves and that he uses. And so do not think that anyone is too far to be saved and redeemed by the Lord. God creates the church through his word. God creates life through his word. In Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning of the Bible, God speaks and life is created. He says, let there be light, and there's light. And just as he speaks and all of life is created, so God uses his word to create spiritual life. Uh, the, the passage, again, that we read in the, in the scripture reading, it said, you have been born again through the living and abiding word. You have been saved through the word. Romans 1.16 says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. In Romans 10, he says, how will they believe if they don't hear? And then he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And one of the most vivid places I think we see this is in the book of Ezekiel, and I think this is so cool. God tells the prophet Ezekiel to preach to dead, dry bones. And when he says the word of the Lord to the dead and dry bones, they gain life. It's a picture that when the word is shared, God uses it to create spiritual life, to create the church, to build his church. If I could just like give you the summary of the book of Acts, like, like a one-word summary of what's happening in Acts, it would be this. The Holy Spirit uses the word of God to create the people of God to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. I mean, already, we're only in chapter 6. Already we've had three sermons take up most of the space in this book. And uh, next week in chapter 7, we're going to see another. The, the pattern thus far has been the word is shared, the people are praying, and the Holy Spirit gives the growth. That is what the book of Acts is showing us. What are the implications of this for the church? Well, we must keep the word primary. You as the congregation must have right expectations for all the elders and pastors to be those who keep the word primary. And the ministry of the word is not just standing up here and, and preaching in front of uh, the whole congregation. The ministry of the word also involves teaching one-on-one. -on -one. All of our elders are those who teach the word. Even the ones who don't stand up here, they do it in different ways. Maybe it's just teaching one-on-one. -on -one. Maybe it's teaching a small group Bible study. Maybe it's teaching in a smaller setting on our Thursday night Bible study. Or maybe it's teaching up here. But they all teach in some way. They all have a ministry of the word. And you as the congregation should expect it of us. In fact, some of you will probably move at some point. You'll probably need to find a different church at some point in your life. What are you to expect? You're to expect pastors who keep the word primary. 
And I'm, I'm so thankful that uh, Greg, our main teaching pastor, does that. And does that week in and week out. But there's also implications for your own life. If your idea of salvation comes apart from the message of the gospel, then I don't know that you are truly saved. Like if your idea in your head of salvation is, so-and-so invited me to church, and I just started going and I never looked back. That's not how the word presents how someone's saved. It's believing in the gospel that saves someone. So I ask you to consider if, if, if your picture of your salvation is something other that, that involves something other than the good news of the gospel, think about that. But it also has implications for how we share the gospel. I mean, the, the book of Acts has really been encouraging us to be witnesses for Christ in our community. And one of the things that I think is just a beautiful thing is when we uh, share a testimony about how God has changed our life. You know, when we say, I was in this place, and then uh, Jesus came into my life, and he, he turned my life around. But a testimony doesn't have the power of God for salvation. The gospel does. So there's a way to share your testimony where the gospel is in it and part of it. But just saying Jesus changed me is not the power of God for salvation. And so even for evangelism, we should know, we should expect that when we share God's word, that is what God will use to save and create his people. This takes faith. This is a supernatural. It's not like this practical game plan that we have. It takes faith to believe that the Bible, to stand behind it all the time, is what God uses supernaturally to save people. Okay, so that's reason number one, uh, that God creates the church through his word. Let me give you the second one. Reason number two is that God sanctifies the church by his word. So sanctifies just is another word to basically say that God uh, grows us and matures us and makes us look more like Jesus in our lives. It's interesting. If God's word only created the church, but that's all it was useful for, then why in Acts chapter 2 would we see that the new Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching? If they had already been saved, why would they need to devote themselves to the teachings of the Bible? And it's because not only does God's word create the church, but God uses his word to sanctify us, to grow us, to make us look more like him. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. John 17, 17 was another one we read in the scripture reading. This is Jesus' prayer for his disciples. He says, he prays to God and says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Uh, Jesus also says in Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then also in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, Peter uses this imagery for us of like, think of a newborn baby that longs for milk. 
think of how it longs for that milk. So you should long for the word in that way. Because the word is what will cause you to grow. And so we see that uh, the word shapes us. It changes us. It's no accident that we've heard more stories of people uh, sharing their faith with others. It's no accident because we've been in the book of Acts, which is all about being witnesses. The word has been shaping us as a church. But also for your own life. How do we grow? How do we change? If you realize that there is a sinful pattern in your life, or you have this old sinful desire or old sinful affection, how do we change and how do we grow? One method is to run from it, to put as many walls and barriers up in front of it, to just think about the negative consequences of it. And not that those things can't be helpful, but do we really change that way? Uh, an uh, older uh, pastor named Thomas Chalmers wrote this uh, sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in it, he argues this, and I think he's right, based on God's word. How we change is not just by fleeing from sin, but pursuing Christ as well. The thing that changes our hearts is not just rejecting an old sinful desire, but having a new love and affection for Christ. To, to be so caught up in who God is, to have such a great love for God that sin has no place to exist in our heart because of the love of God in it. And that that new affection is actually what drives out our sin. And so the Bible isn't just like an instruction manual for the Christian. It's not just like do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. So much of the Bible is intended to give us more of God and of his character. It's to fill our minds and our hearts with God and who he is. And when we are so caught up in God and in who he is, and when our hearts grow in love for God, that is the most powerful thing in changing us and driving out our old sinful desires and affections. And so the word of God sanctifies us. It changes us. I pray this morning that we would have a renewed sense of the power and authority of God's word. We have a teaching pastor who stands up here week after week and holds to that authority. And so for many of you, it's, it's not something new that we're saying. But maybe your heart needs to be reminded this week that it is the word that God uses to save. That it is the word that God uses to change us and grow us. It is his word that has a higher power and higher authority than our words ever could. Let me finish by reading the rest of the story that we have in chapter 6. Let's look at verse 8. 
if I could give you a little taste of what's to come. We have seven men who were chosen for the task of managing the daily distribution. The first two men were Stephen and Philip. We're going to see that chapter 7 is all about Stephen. We're going to see that chapter 8 is all about Philip. Let's read in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So just a quick note, the synagogue of the freedmen, these are Jews who follow Judaism, Freedmen likely is referring to the fact that at one point these Jews were slaves, and now they have been free. And they're probably Greek-speaking Jews because uh, the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, that's uh, areas in North Africa. And Cilicia in Asia is in modern-day Turkey. So they're they're Jews from different places. They're they're Greek-speaking Jews. Um, And so they are coming and opposing Stephen. Verse 10, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen is brought before these Jews who follow Judaism. And he is accused. They do not like the message of Christ that he's sharing. And so they accuse him. Interestingly, they accuse him of the same things that they accuse Jesus of. Saying that the temple will be destroyed. Saying that he's come to abolish the law of Moses. And next week you'll see in chapter 7 that Stephen responds directly to these two things. This is good to note for next week that he's going to respond to the temple idea and he's going to respond to the law of Moses idea next week. But he's accused of these things. And another thing to look out for is that this is not the last time that Stephen looks like Christ. There's something to be said in that for how we are witnesses in the world. So they bring him before uh, them, and then they, they, they have these false witnesses accusing him of these things. It's interesting, they're accusing him of abolishing the law of Moses while they're breaking the law of Moses by having false witnesses. And in verse 15, we, say that they all, we see that they all looked at him and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And this should make us think back to the book of Exodus. When Moses comes down from the mountain after being with God, his face is shining. And so Stephen is not against Moses, but rather like him. And he is one who has been with God. 
And so we, we see he's brought before them. Again, the church is facing persecution. He's on trial. They're bringing false witnesses. And what happens next? How does Stephen respond? You've got to come back next week to find out. And I know it will be a powerful message. And I don't even know what Greg's preparation has been like. But I know it will be powerful because the word is powerful. Let's pray. Dear God, give us a greater reverence for you. Give us a greater posture of humility before you and of the power and authority of your word. Would we recognize and always keep it primary in the church and in our lives? I ask, Lord, that if there's anyone here today or anyone who's been watching this on live stream who has never repented and put their faith in you, that right now you would use your word to create spiritual life in them. And God, I pray for those that are your people, that are Christians and followers of Christ in this room. I pray that this time thinking about and talking about your word, even in itself, would be a time of growth for us, of sanctifying. I don't, Lord, feel worthy to pray what Christ has prayed, but if we could just simply remember his words, how he prayed to the Father, your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this time today, and we pray this in your good name. Amen. If you would like prayer for any matter in your life, we will have prayer partners and elders up here after the service. You can come forward. Thank you for being here today, and uh, hopefully everyone can try to stay dry on their way out to their car. God bless you, church.